Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. I am your host in Russian and Eurasian Studies, Philip Falgach. Joining me today is Thane Gustafson, author of Wheel of Fortune, The Battle for Oil and Power in Russia. Dr. Gustafson is a professor of government at Georgetown University. Dr. Gustafson worked as a consultant for energy and power in the Soviet Union. Since the collapse, Dr. Gustafson has focused on Russia's ability to recover its oil industry and its ability to move forward with it. This book is about the key role that oil plays in Russian politics and the Russian economy. And joining us now is Thane Gustafson. Thane, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure, Philippe. Thanks for having me. Before we go into talking about your book, Wheel of Fortune, uh, Battle for Oil and Power in Russia, uh, I'd like to learn a little bit more about yourself, how you got into Russian history and uh, how you came to work in Russia for such a long time. Well, it goes way back. Uh, and uh, it just goes to show that life is an accident. I was at the University of Illinois. I was a chemistry major, and um, I was minding my own business, uh, uh, you know, distilling stuff in the lab and so on. But uh, you had to take general education requirements. And uh, so I, uh, I, I, I wandered into a course on uh, modern Russian history. And uh, that just sort of took over my life. And about the same time, my roommate had to start studying Russian. And so there he was at night studying his Russian, and then during the day I was learning about all these amazing things that happened uh, under the Soviets, and uh, somehow that seemed more interesting than chemistry. But something remains, because I think my interest in uh, in energy uh, comes from the fact that if you are focusing on oil and energy, why you're doing the science, you're doing the technology, uh, you're doing the economics, you're doing the politics, it all comes together. So that's... I think that's what uh, that's my story. Uh, and what did you work on when you went to Russia? What was your sort of line of work? Well, I first went to something called the Soviet Union, and uh, I actually ended up in Kiev. Uh, and and I, I think, I honestly believe I was only American in Kiev uh, in uh, 1972. So this, this takes you back a ways. Um, and uh, I met the other day the uh, the gentleman who is now our ambassador to uh, Moscow, John Taft, but who was for a time our ambassador to Ukraine. And I think I really startled him by saying, uh, by saying, you're looking at the very first U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, namely me. <laughs> so that was Kiev. Uh, and um, to cut a long story short, I went from there to Moscow. To uh, continue my uh, graduate research, this was uh, for the for the doctorate, uh, and um, ended up at the Institute of Geography there, um, and also a crazy place called the Institute of Water Problems, and and they were set up to uh, to do the designs and concept for this crazy idea to uh, raise the level of the Caspian uh, by diverting Siberian uh, rivers, and also to raise the, uh, the to save the Aral Sea by diverting Siberian rivers from Siberia down into Central Asia. And, um, you know, it's very much like the stuff that we used to do in the, in the American West. 
these big water movement projects. Well, that's what the Soviets were into. Gorbachev canceled all that, and I had to find something else to do. I was wondering if you could uh, if you could start telling us about the role that oil played in the Soviet Union, and then once the Soviet Union fell apart, how it impacted Russian politics, Russian economy, and maybe the global economy in general. Well, oil became absolutely critical for the Soviet Union in its last two decades. Uh, the the Soviets were having more and more difficulty feeding their population. Uh, the agriculture system, the collectivized system, was always the the, uh, uh, the the weak part of the Soviet planned economy. Uh, and in order to make up for food shortages, uh, the Soviets started importing massive quantities of uh, of wheat and and other grains. Uh, and uh, also consumer goods. So uh, in order to keep their military-industrial system going, why they didn't have enough left over for consumer goods, so they exported oil and then uh, increasingly gas, uh, and they used that to pay for agricultural imports. And that really allowed the system to keep on going uh, for quite some time. And then disaster struck uh, because in 1986, oil prices collapsed. Uh, oil's a commodity, so it goes up and then it goes down and it goes up again, then it goes down again. And we've been through several cycles of this, but, but each time, if you're an oil producer, it, it, um, it hits you hard. And particularly since the Soviets were vulnerable, it hit them especially hard. And so in 1986, uh, it was really oil, much as anything, the falling oil prices that uh, really blew the system apart. And uh, how did the Soviet Union recover uh, in after 1986, or if it didn't recover, how did that crisis lead into the beginning of the Yeltsin regime? Well, the the uh, period of low oil prices uh, really lasted uh, into uh, the end of the 90s. The, the 90s were a period of generally relatively low oil prices, uh, but still, this the uh, Russians kept on exporting. Uh, oil production dropped by about half, though, uh, but at the same time, consumption also dropped. Uh, so the, the uh, Russians were able to keep on exporting oil uh, and gas. Uh, and it was really those two things that, um, that made the difference. Uh, because when this, the planned economy fell apart, everything fell apart. Uh, the, there had been no market system, no way of getting goods from from. You know, no way demand could meet supply. There, there was no price system at first. You had to invent everything from scratch. And during that very tough decade of the 1990s, why it was oil and gas that uh, kept them going. Uh, you talk a lot in your book about the fight for control over Russian oil and gas resources after the the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, could you explain this process uh, in the Yeltsin and, and then the Putin era and how it changes over the course of the ten years with Putin coming into power? Well, what happened when the Soviet Union broke up, it, you, could, you could sum up what happened by saying that it was basically a rebellion. It, it was a rebellion of the, uh, the, uh, the Russian Republic against the, the, the Soviet Union above, him, uh, above, above it. Uh, it was a rebellion of Boris Yeltsin, uh, the head of the Russian Republic, against the head of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. But it was a, also a rebellion of the Russian business elite and the party elite uh, against the system in Moscow. Every man for himself, and I'm going to get my own. That's basically what it came, out, came down to. And um, uh, right in there were the Siberian oil chiefs 
and the chiefs of the other what they called production associations in the oil industry, uh, who moved very quickly to capture the uh, the oil fields uh, in order to um, privatize. And that's what happened. The, uh, the, the Soviet oil industry was very quickly privatized. And by the time you get down to the beginning of the Putin era, uh, nearly all of Russian oil production has been privatized. So that's where you get these company names that arise out of nowhere. Uh, names like uh, Surgut and Luke Oil and so on. Uh, and that's how it all began. Obviously, if oil production is privatized, then the profit is going into the pockets of, of a specific few people, and then the resources, the revenues from it are going where they want to go. With Putin taking over an economy struggling, what was his remedy to fixing the Russian economy? And obviously, it's tied in with his, uh, with his relationship towards the oil oligarchs. The Russian government never really got out of the oil business. Uh, and so when we say privatization, it was privatization of the upstream and privatization of the refineries. But the Russian government was able to keep control of one absolutely cruel asset, and that was the pipeline. So if you're an oil producer up in Siberia, there's not much you can do with your oil without putting it into a pipeline. And if the government still owns the pipelines and still controls the pipelines, why? They can still levy taxes on you and they can still levy tariffs. And also, they still controlled more or less the, the exit ports. Those were privatized, but there was still a customer service. Now, all of this very corrupt, of course, uh, but the, the government was still able to collect some revenues from the system. And this was true in the gas industry as well. Uh, so you might say the 90s are a time of constant contest of between what remains of state power and then this emerging new private sector. Um, but you're right that a lot of that oil revenue now started going into private hands. And uh, Exhibit A here, the most famous example, was the rise of a new company called Yukos. And uh, um, another thing that uh, was going on in parallel was that the Soviet-era oil generals, as they used to call them, the guys who were in charge of the upstream in Soviet times, in many cases they got squeezed out by new interests that came along, uh, local governors, politicians, um, sometimes gangsters, sometimes, uh, you know, guys off the street, traders who came out of nowhere. Uh, but the most famous example was uh, guys from the, uh, the new privatized Russian banks. And uh, Yukos was taken over by a, a, a young go-go banker uh, who had uh, built his fortune in uh, by uh, uh, building one of the new private banks. And then in 1998, uh, he took over uh, an oil company. And so all of a sudden, Mikhail Khodorkovsky is an oil man. Once Khodorkovsky takes over, uh, there's, a, there's a famous fight between him and, him and Putin, right? Uh, Khodorkovsky ends up getting imprisoned. Could you talk about what happens between 2000 and 2008, where there is one, a resurgence in oil profits, but also a resurgence in the state control over Russian oil, over uh, in terms of taxes, in terms of oil pipes, in terms of actual production? Well, you're absolutely right, Philip, to begin with what happens with, uh, with prices and revenues, because at the end of 1999, remember there was something called the Asian flu that, that broke out in, uh, in Southeast Asia in 1998 and then spread across the world. 
uh, and it hit Russia. Uh, and once again, the result is a decline, a collapse in oil prices. We go through this every 10 years or so. Uh, and uh, oil prices briefly went under $10 a barrel again. Uh, and uh, that was, of course, the uh, the moment at which Khodorkovsky saw his opportunity and swooped in and, and took over. So then luckily for him, beginning of 1999, and it always happens, oil prices bottom out and they start heading up again. Except this time it was a sustained rise in oil prices that went from 99 all the way through until 2008 uh, and uh, uh, led finally to uh, prices well over $100 a barrel. So that's a lot of money coming in. And uh, Yukos in particular uh, rode that wave but also uh, put in some Western uh, technology and doubled its own production. So if you combine that with the increase in prices, you're talking about uh, a lot of resources to play with. And Hanarkovsky started building a, a political platform. He had become, by this time, as you can imagine, a true believer in private enterprise. Uh, but he actually, uh, he, he actually built a pretty respectable corporation, uh, Russian style, to be sure, but nevertheless uh, efficient. Uh, in its way, certainly compared to the, the Soviet period. So it was quite a pioneer. Uh, in any case, though, he was um, not appreciated by the rest of the oil fraternity, and he was certainly not appreciated by the Kremlin, because it became clear pretty soon that he had political ambitions. And that's what put him on a collision course with the new president elected in 2000, Vladimir Putin, after this collision course with, with Khodorkovsky and the rebounding oil prices, Russia obviously is profiting in a, in a big way from the oil industry, but Russia is also has to deal with the, with a changing global market with Saudi Arabia, with the U.S. always bargaining and uh, and shifting their power in oil and their influence on, on the oil industry. Uh, so what sort of issues does Russia begin to go through uh, starting in the late 2000s uh, with Putin uh, still at the helm, in effect, maybe, if not officially? Well, if you look at Russia in, uh, in, in perspective, uh, compared to other oil producers, uh, they are low-cost producers, uh, and so they are still able to compete at, uh, at low oil prices. They take a big hit, but uh, they are still able to compete uh, because uh, a lot of their oil production was developed in Soviet times. Uh, and so they've still got a lot that just keeps on going without having to invest too much uh, from uh, day to day or year to year. But the problem is that's going to an end. Uh, that's that Soviet legacy. And this is a big point that I make in, in Wheel of Fortune. That Soviet legacy is is gradually running down. And in particular, the core of it, which is Siberia, that stuff that all those oil generals were fighting over. Uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, that's starting to run down particularly. Uh, that's their that's their cheap oil. That's their low low cost oil. That's that's starting to go into decline. So how are they going to keep on going as an oil producer? Well, they've got to now and in, start investing heavily in the future. But the future is not going to be the um, uh, uh, the conventional oil from West Siberia. So they've got to go basically in three directions. Now, the first is the deep offshore. If you look at the map of Russia, there's that whole north coast on the Arctic Ocean. Uh, that is very prospect. 
Now, no one knows whether that's going to turn out to be oil or gas. And the only way to find out is you got to buy a lottery ticket in the form of many, many billions of dollars of exploration investment using technologies that up until now the Russians don't have because they never had to, uh, to, to, to play that game. Hence the alliance with Exxon Mobil and the alliances with various Western uh, majors that have the experience in, in Arctic shore. That's the oil of 2030, 2040, 2050, even in the best case. And as I said, it could turn out to be gas, which would be fine. But if you're looking for real profits, you go for oil. So uh, in the last third of the book, I talk about that dilemma that the Russians are facing. They've got to invest more in order to get tomorrow's oil. But at the same time, they need the revenues from today's oil. So they're, they're, uh, right there, there's a, there's a tension in, in Russian oil policy. Uh, how do you square that circle? Well, it turns out that there's a lot of conventional oil left in what they call East Siberia. And uh, it's the geology is different. Uh, there's not as much of it. Uh, but while you're getting to that deep offshore stuff at the middle of the next century, why you go out to East Siberia and you start developing that. And that the, the Russians can do much more on their own. That's, that's sort of your classic Soviet go out there in the wilderness and uh, uh, cut down all the trees, set up the rigs, and away you go. It's higher cost than the old stuff, but it's there, and you can produce it. The trouble is there's not enough of it. And then lastly, and here's the exciting part. It just broke as I was finishing the book. So I managed to get some of it into the book. but. The action has continued. Suddenly, there's this new development that comes completely by surprise from North America, and that's shale oil. Or as the movement continues, now they're starting to broaden that, that out. They don't call it shale oil so much now. They call it just unconventional oil or tight oil. Now, what that's all about is that you go back to some of the older fields that you've been producing for decades, you use a new combination of technologies, and all of a sudden that unlocks that unlocks oil in the kinds of rocks that were too too dense, too impermeable to produce before. And it's been an explosion. Suddenly, the United States is back. Um, that's good news for oil people. That's, of course, bad news for environmentalists because all of a sudden now. We're into an era of much cheaper hydrocarbons. What does that mean for the Russians? Well, they've got to adopt that, those new technologies to go back into West Siberia, and there'll be a renaissance, West Siberian oil, as they develop these new techniques and adopt these new techniques for unconventional oil. So that's the story going forward. In a decent price environment, the Russians are going to get a new lease on life. Is this new movement, will it have to be driven through politics, through, through the Kremlin, or will this uh, take on a more privatized approach, do you think? Well, oil is always driven through politics, but especially in Russia. And uh, question number one has to do with, with taxes. Uh, as I mentioned the government never really uh, lost its grip over the oil industry. They continued to control the pipelines in particular. But especially after the fight between Putin and Khodorkovsky, uh, the Kremlin had um, made its point, shall we say, and the oil 
industry now pays its taxes and uh, tries to stay out of trouble. Uh, the problem is that the government's collecting too much in taxes. And that was killing incentives to invest, to in explore in the next generation of, uh, of technologies uh, and to move out into new areas. Uh, so the big battle in Russian oil politics for the last several years has been uh, <laughs> how much do you tax? How much do you, uh, how much do you, how, how many feathers do you pluck from the, from the golden goose? Uh, in order to uh, keep the industry going and at the same time support the, uh, the state. The dilemma is this. The Russian government, over 50% of its revenues come from oil and gas taxes. And so they've got to have that revenue. At the same time, you've got to allow enough to the oil and gas industry to invest in the next generation. So it's this constant battle over how much is enough, how much is too much. Uh, with everything going on today in Ukraine and with oil prices dipping pretty severely in the United States, how is this affecting Russia, Russia's development of future oil since its dependence on oil revenues is so high? Could you explain this, this relationship in any detail? Well, yes. Uh, this, of course, is the big development, and it's something that broke after I had finished the book. Uh, no one could anticipate the sequence of events that have led to uh, the, uh, the sanctions that we've, we've witnessed today. Um, I think even the, the, uh, I think the, even the Europeans and the Americans are astonished at the devastating impact that sanctions are having on the Russian economy. Uh, basically it goes like this. If you're a, uh, if you're a bank in London or in New York, and you're considering whether to make a loan to a Russian borrower, there will be uh, what they call compliance lawyers advising you on whether this is a good idea or not. And what those compliance lawyers will tell you is don't mess with the Treasury Department. Don't mess with the European sanctions. Uh, the risks are too great, so don't do it. And the result is that capital markets across the entire Western world have slammed shut. And Russians are simply not able to borrow. And this is not just in the companies that have been directly targeted by sanctions, but it's across the board where Western lenders are basically saying, look, it's too risky. I don't know whether, I don't know whether the authorities can come after me or not. So I won't lend. And consequently, the Russians are simply not able to borrow, borrow in any sector. So at this moment, the entire uh, credit system has, has basically been shut down. Now, the, so far, the oil and gas industry is, uh, ironically, somewhat less affected than the others because they've got cash flow. But, of course, this is where the declining oil prices come in. Let's, let's imagine that in round numbers, the Russians were getting $800 million a day from oil exports in all, all their forms, crude oil, refined products, and so on, 800 million barrels a day at a price of $100 a barrel. Now, all of a sudden, after oil prices started to decline, uh, mainly uh, since the summer, now the, the price has dropped by half. And so that $800 million a day becomes $400 million a day. Well, uh, if in addition to that, you're not able to borrow. In fact, if you're already deeply in debt, as Rosneft, the Russian national oil company is, where does that leave you? 
And where does that leave your ability to develop the next generation of oil? So that's been the, the uh, chain of consequences of the uh, face-off in Ukraine. And thanks for joining us. Uh, before I let you go, though, I would like to ask you if you're working on anything, anything new. Well, right now I'm very, very focused on Ukraine and on uh, Germany because I think the story is gas. And uh, uh, at this moment, what we're seeing is uh, a, a break in uh, Russian-German commercial relations and economic relations, again, as a result of what's been happening in Ukraine. Um, at this moment, the, uh, as you know, because you're covering this, Philippe, the, the, the trends in Ukraine are, are not good. And consequently, the, the outlook is, is very worrisome. Well, that's historic, because if there is one relationship that has kept particularly the, the whole gas relationship going between Russia and Europe, uh, it, it has been that Russian-German uh, economic tie. And that is now in the process of being broken. If that happens... That's a historic change. Thanks so much for joining us today on New Books Network, and we'll look forward to interviewing for that book when that comes out as well. Well, thanks for your interest in Wheel of Fortune. It's been fun writing it, and it's been fun talking about it. Thanks for having me, Philippe. 